This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. I don't remember if I had a name for this series when I gave the first part of it last year, but I've come up with one since then. Uh, for the last year, I studied the model for growth that's found in Second Peter chapter 1, where he lays out the things that we need to do as Christians to grow. I don't think I have that, uh, the slide with that passage in my presentation this morning, but if you'll turn to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we'll read that passage briefly, just as a reminder of what we're looking at. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, the apostle writes, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. So last time we talked about the things that Peter told to his audience in verses 8 through 10, about the reasons why they should pursue this model for growth that he presented in those first several verses. And then we talked about faith, because Peter was writing to a faithful audience. That's why he started this, uh, this process with add to your faith. He didn't, it, he didn't tell his audience to begin by gaining faith, so he's writing to an audience that was already faithful in the first place. So we talked about what it meant uh, to have the kind of faith that he wanted his audience to add these things to. And so that brings us to a discussion of virtue. And what kind of virtue was Peter talking about when he wrote this letter? And how can we go about adding virtue to our lives today? In the modern day, we use virtue generally to mean good moral quality. But in the world, we don't really discuss virtue anymore, at least or especially not in the way that the church tries to talk about it today, the way that the scriptures talked about it when they were originally written and as they were studied throughout time. We no longer discuss what is good. Instead, the world tends to discuss only what is permissible. And as we go on through time, it seems that more and more and more and more things are permissible except for what is good. And so what ends up happening is that the permissible replaces the good. And it becomes good to do anything that you can get away with. And it becomes bad to tell anybody not to do something. So today we're going to talk about what the Bible meant when it talks about virtue. The first way that the Bible talks about virtue is power. The word dunamis is used in the Gospels to describe virtue in certain passages, like in Mark chapter 5, verse 30, and Luke chapter 8, verse 46, which record the same event. 
where Jesus is amongst a crowd of people and one of them touches his garment. And Mark and Luke both use the word virtue to record what has gone out of Jesus into the woman that had touched his clothing. And and this power that had gone out of Jesus had healed her. And they use the word virtue to record that. But this is not the word that is used in the letters, including in Second Peter. That word is arete, which means excellence. Peter wrote two of the uses of this word in this, uh, this second letter of his. In Paul's letter to, letter to the Philippians, he also uses this word. And he gives us a list of things which I think can be described as virtuous. In Philippians 4, verse 8, he writes, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. I don't think he would have gone through all the trouble to list all of these things here, the true, the honest, the just, the pure, the lovely and of good reputation. I don't think he would have listed all of those things there if he didn't consider those to be virtuous. You might say in the modern terms that these things listed here are of good moral quality. So what can we say that virtue is? At this point, we could just say, well, it's these things that are here on this list. Got ahead of myself in my notes here. But we can add additional virtue described in other places in Scripture. The first that comes to mind is a Scripture like 1 Timothy 3. And I got really ahead of my slides there. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 10, where Paul again writing records the qualifications uh, that elders and deacons are to have. Where he writes, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. So you have long lists throughout Scripture that are given to us that are virtuous. In the first place, we have Paul describing things that are virtuous, things that we should think about and meditate on. And we also have him giving us the qualifications of the people that are to be in leadership positions in the church. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that if our leaders are to have these qualities, then these qualities ought to be considered virtuous. But what kind of person might God call virtuous? Would it be somebody that knows what these things are and just does them on occasion? I cut 
Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 out of my notes, but not out of my presentation. Let's go ahead and read that one. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Also in Hebrews, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I'm, I'm second guessing myself here. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of my notes. I apologize. Let me back up. I was trying to make the point that the kind of person that we might call virtuous, the kind of person that God might call virtuous, is not somebody that is just virtuous on occasion. Not somebody that just knows the things that we've talked about so far in detail, the qualifications of the leaders in the church or the kinds of things that we're to think about, and does them occasionally, but somebody that consistently does those things. Someone who, you might say, is excellent in the practice of virtue. I want to discuss for a few moments the meaning of arete, as I mentioned earlier. That's the word that the apostles used as they wrote their letters to the churches to try and tell them about how to live virtuously. They used this Greek word. Let's go ahead and put that next slide up there. It's this word right here. They use this word to describe virtue or in, in discussions about virtue. The literal meaning of this word is manliness, not masculinity, not the things that make a male masculine, but rather the things that are appropriate for a man to do, the things that uh, is his calling as a male. Manliness in the Greek tradition was courage, vigor, and energy. So I think we could add these things to the general meaning of virtue so that we could say a Christian, male or female, can express virtue by having courage, vigor, and energy and boldly working toward the expansion of the church. After all, doesn't it take courage to spread the gospel? You know, we think of, or when I think of spreading the gospel today, I think that it requires courage to talk to somebody that might get upset with you because you're bringing up religion. But this would have been certainly more the case in the first century when bringing up religion might have got you thrown in jail or executed or maybe hung on a cross and lit on fire so that Nero could use you to light his chariot races. The scripture speaks about Christians going about with boldness and courage in a few ways. And now, now we get to the reason that I had these passages from Hebrews and 1 John in this presentation here. And this is what we read earlier. That because Jesus is our high priest, because he has paved the way to God's throne for us, we can approach him with boldness. And we can obtain mercy. Because... We have Jesus as our high priest, a perfect high priest who has transcended the uh, Old Testament role of that position. We can now enter into the modern holiest of holies, if you will. We can enter into the presence of God boldly. Then in Hebrews 13 and verse 5 and 6, 
the author of this letter continues to write, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Because Jesus promised to never leave or forsake us, we can live boldly without fear of what the world will do to us. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, the apostle here writes, And we have known and believed the love, that God hath, the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Because God loves us, so long as we strive for godliness, we can be confident in our salvation. It doesn't have to be a guessing game. It can be something we're confident in. I guess I need to learn to trust my notes, which are a little, little bit more detailed than my presentation. In addition to manliness, arete was also used to speak figuratively about excellence. What does excellence in virtue look like? I think it takes the form of a Christian who practices their virtue even when they would get away with vice, even when they would get away with breaking God's commandments. I get this idea from God's commandment about lust from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. From the mouth of Jesus, he says, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So here we have a commandment about virtue, that we're to keep our thoughts pure, our minds pure. And who's going to know if we can do that or not. It's not going to be anybody that observes you from the outside. It's not going to be any person, nobody that I know of, has the actual ability to read minds. But God, who can see the thoughts and intents of our heart, who knows everything, is going to know if we're being of, if we have integrity in living virtuously, if we're able to govern ourselves in a virtuous manner. Many of God's commandments are of this nature. Many commandments involve an observable practice. But we're often in positions where we don't have another Christian's eyes on us. Where it might be convenient for you to break one of God's commandments because you're going to get away with it. Excellence in virtue requires restraint, requires accountability in these areas that we hold ourselves to. So the pursuit of virtue requires that virtue have a component of objective good, something that comes from God, something that comes from somewhere greater than man and his thoughts and his imaginations and a component of excellence. I see Paul writing to the effect of objective virtue in the Philippian letter and Peter uses the same word in a broader sense of moral excellence. In practice, it looks something like this. There are behaviors that are virtuous that may be performed by a person who is not yet really added virtue to their lives. In this sense, the action is virtue, but the lack of excellence is a lack of virtue. 
I imagine the lack of excellence expresses itself in a person who struggles to perform virtuous deeds. Perhaps someone who is faithful but has one, more than one sin problem that they struggle to live virtuously through. So the pursuit of virtue, adding virtue to our lives, includes the practice of exercising virtuous deeds towards the end of achieving excellence so that we might not struggle any longer. I don't think that it's possible for a person to reach a state where they no longer commit any sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So to say that we are without sin is to make Christ a liar, to make his sacrifice of no importance. God describes virtue in the case of someone who has stumbled as repenting of their failure, confession of that failure, and prayer for forgiveness. I believe it's between the Christian and God as to whether or not their stumbling was a single event that represents a moment of weakness or whether it's part of a pattern that means that you're failing in living virtuously. As it's written in Hebrews 4 and verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So now how do, we, how do we add virtue to our faith? Keeping in mind that there are two kinds to add, the virtuous acts and the excellence in those things. In the first place, we add virtue to faith by adding virtuous principles to our spiritual lives. This brings to my, my mind the building of a house. If faith is our foundation, the reason that we do what we do, then the things we add to that faith are the house that we build on our foundation. In this sense, building our house with virtual, virtuous principles means adding each of those things to our lives. How do we add these virtues to our lives if they're absent? From my study, I haven't found a single passage that offers the kind of advice that I think of as explicit. Like, if you want to add this virtue to your life, here's steps one, two, three. I didn't find any passage like that. The way I see it, the way to cultivate this kind of virtue is to immerse yourself in the culture of Christianity. A lot like the way that someone learns a second language. The best way is to immerse yourself in it, to surround yourself with that second language so that you hear the words that you're trying to learn used in casual conversation, used in different contexts. You can begin to pick up on how that language is used in the same way. We ought to immerse ourselves. If we're struggling to add virtue to our lives, we ought to surround ourselves with Christians, surround ourselves with people who are living virtuously, who are successfully being excellent in their good moral practice. I think there's three things that we can start doing today that will help us in that area. The first is to pray to God for assistance in these areas and be diligent in your prayers. You know, ask God for the same assistance in the same areas repeatedly. The second thing is to fellowship regularly and often with fellow Christians. Obviously, in the worship service is a good time and a place to do that. 
but you don't have to limit yourself to just two or three times a week to this activity. If you're, if you're capable, you can have people over to your home to feed them a meal and to visit with them, talk about the things that you're struggling with, be open, be honest, be frank about the things that uh, you want to add to your life and the areas where you're struggling. If you don't think you have the capacity to take care of someone's physical needs in that way, then maybe just phone calls, maybe just having somebody over to visit, just making sure that you're spending more and more time in the presence of Christians rather than less. Finally, and I think that this is the most powerful thing to do, find a fellow Christian that you can trust and open up to them. Find someone that you can trust to check on you, to remind you of the journey that you're on, and help remind you that you're trying to overhaul your life or trying to change something. Somebody that you can trust to confess a failing to, somebody that's going to help you through that situation. This relationship is something very personal that you're going to have to work on on yourself, and I don't think I am fit to tell you exactly how to do that. But I think everybody here can think of at least one person that you could trust to help you in this manner. How do we pursue excellence in virtue? As I mentioned, I think excellence in virtue has, to do, has a lot to do with integrity, doing the virtuous thing when you otherwise get away with it. And I think that this is the clear intention behind many of God's commandments, especially those regarding sin and righteousness. When Jesus says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already, he doesn't mean except some people. He doesn't mean that this applies only when we're surrounded by Christians, when it's safe, when it's relatively safe, rather. This is a demand against the thoughts and intents of the heart. Obedience requires integrity and excellence. I think that this is difficult to practice, but I think that we can train ourselves in the same way that we might train ourselves for some physical activity that's dangerous. You know, when you are preparing to do something like skydiving or scuba diving, they don't throw the equipment on you, put you in an airplane 30,000 feet in the air, and push you out the window. That's not how you practice for skydiving. There's exercises that you do on the ground that prepare you for the uh, things that you're going to have to do, the mindset that you're going to have to have as you're falling through the sky, or the muscle memory that you're going to need so that when you're panicking because you can't remember exactly what it is you're supposed to do, your body can remember for you. There's things that we can do spiritually that will prepare us for sin in much the same way. And the tool that Scripture gives us directly is fasting. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, Paul told uh, men and wives that they could use fasting to uh, train them to resist the temptation of fornication. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he writes, "'Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time.'" that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. I don't say this to brag, but I've used fasting in this way to practice prayer. 
You can use fasting to train yourselves in a lot of spiritual tools. Prayer is one thing where you can dedicate the time that you might uh, use to eat breakfast. You'll say, instead of eating breakfast, which takes me, you know, 15, 20 minutes in the morning, I'm going to say a 15-minute prayer instead. And it'll be difficult at first. You may not know what to say for 15 minutes, but that's how you exercise those spiritual muscles, if you will. That's how you train yourself in a safe environment so that when you need 15 minutes of the word just left my mind, when you need 15 minutes of integrity because you're being tempted in a sin and you don't have anybody around you to keep you accountable, then you know you can pray for 15 minutes. And you might be able to pray through that. How to fast is fairly simple. It's not an accident. If you're sitting at your computer at the office or if you're out on a construction site at work, whatever your job is, and one o'clock rolls around and you realize you missed your lunch break, that's not fasting. In order to fast, you need to decide in advance that you're going to use the time that you would have used for a meal instead in some spiritual exercise. It, this can be you know, in-depth study, meditation on a scripture. It can be reading. You just open your Bible and you just read until you run out of time. It can be prayer, as I mentioned already. If you're used to eating at a particular time every single day, you'll very quickly begin to be tempted. Not with a temptation that is a sin to give into. Is when you're, the Bible doesn't tell us that when you're hungry, you're not allowed to eat. But it's a temptation, nevertheless, a temptation that your body is providing for you in a safe environment. If you succumb to the temptation and break your fast sooner than you've intended, you've not sinned. Instead, you have exercised virtue. You've practiced that skill. In conclusion, this is where I meant to have this slide come on. When Peter tells his audience to add virtue to their faith, he means absolute virtue in the sense of virtuous living and boldness. In addition, he means excellence in virtue in the form of integrity, practicing these good moral principles even when no other person can hold you accountable. Adding these forms of virtue to the aspiring Christian is like learning a new language. It requires immersion in the Christian lifestyle. We can do this through prayer, through fellowship, through accountability. And we can practice virtue and excellence through the spiritual exercise of purposeful fasting. I think the more fully one commits to doing all of these things, the better it will be for us, the faster that we will be able to acclimate to virtuous living. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.